Hope is the thing with feathers. Hope is the thing with feathers. That's like a bird. Like a bird. That perches in the soul. That perches in the soul. Welcome to the Thing with Feathers podcast, a podcast about birds and hope. I'm your host, birding enthusiast, Courtney Ellis. Welcome back to the Thing with Feathers podcast. I'm your host, Courtney Ellis. Today with us, we have Dave Conrads. Dave is a pastor of Genesis Church. He lives in Iowa, and he is the director of the UI Wild Department in the University of Iowa's College of Education. This is exciting. Tell me about your love for for hawks and raptors. Um, We're really focused on research and education. Um, but my background, when I w- went to grad school at the University of Northern Iowa, um, there was a former classmate of mine from Central College, which was the undergrad program I'd gone to near Des Moines in Pella, Iowa. And uh, he had connected with me. He was what we used to call then a non-traditional student, which meant he was, you know, older. <laughs> and, and he connected with me in, uh, in my first year of grad school, my first fall, actually first summer. And he said, hey, I got some money from the state to, to uh, trap and ban migrating hawks on the Mississippi River. Are you interested? I'm like, heck yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and so um, that, was, uh, that was my introduction to working with birds of prey. And then when I was looking for a thesis topic, uh, the state ecologist at the time from Des Moines came up. He was friends with my advisor and uh, had a list of projects that he thought I might be interested in. And the first one was on the nesting ecology of Cooper's hawks in Iowa. And we never even talked about the other projects. That was it. So mm-hmm. so I really jumped in with that, um, did a ton of work on that, uh, ended up yeah, it's it's really a long and complicated story, but that's how I got into Birds of Prey. And then I took every little side job I could from Peregrine Falcon uh, reintroduction projects at, at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, and then in Cedar Rapids to uh, looking at the effects of pesticides on great horned owls um, in southern Iowa. I mean, every little project I could do with Birds of Prey, I kind of jumped in and that that set me up for the, the job with the Raptor Center at the university. Hmm. How are the Raptors doing in Iowa? Is it an upward trajectory? Are you hopeful? Uh, yeah, you know, it's interesting that you'd ask that because there's, I mean, obviously with bald eagles, which were extirpated, uh, for those who don't know what extirpated is, it means locally extinct. Um, so in Iowa, they had been extirpated uh, after the DDT era. And then they, the first nest in Iowa as the population began recovering was, in, I believe, in the late 70s. And I heard recently, and I think this is true, that now all 99 counties of Iowa, which is a very rural place, have bald, active bald eagle nests. Mm. So there are certain certain raptors that are, you know, the trajectory is great. Um, red-shouldered hawks, are, which are state endangered, I'm seeing and hearing more and more reports of red shoulders. So it looks like their numbers are rebounding. But mm. then you have others that are really uh, habitat dependent. I mean, they all are habitat dependent, but... For Iowa, which was this amazing prairie state, uh, you know, prior to European settlement, it's now the most altered landscape in all of the United States of America um, wow. because the prairie now is, you know, is fertile. And so it was all plowed under and even marginal 
areas were drained. So the marshes were gone, the wetlands are gone. And hmm. um, so it's a, it's a really sad state of affairs. So you have, especially like northern harriers or short-eared owls, which are ground nesters in the prairie or marshlands. Those are, you know, extremely rare breeders. Hmm. They may be extirpated. Hmm. So it all depends, depends on the species. But a lot of them are adapting. Like when I was doing work on Cooper's hawks, which were state endangered at the time, they're everywhere. They're everywhere yeah. now. They're they're in the city. They're they're in the the uplands. Um, you know, some of them have just really rebounded well. We were we were eating dinner. I have three young kids, and my husband and I we were eating dinner, and one of the kids goes, "What's that?" And we look in the backyard, and there's a Cooper's hawk sitting just in this shower of mockingbird feathers and, and the kids are like he's having dinner too like yes he is <laughs> it was you know nature channel right up close cooper's hawks are amazing they're just yeah and the fact that you do get them sometimes in the actual backyard is is pretty magical the our daughter yep. was sad about the mockingbird but the boys were like this is amazing <laughs> So I ask people as part of coming on this podcast, what their favorite bird is. And usually people tell me a whole species. They like, you know, they like kites or they like uh, kestrels. And you had, you answered this question in a way no one else has so far with one particular bird. Tell me about Moby. Yeah. So Moby Dick, <laughs> you know, you have the white whale that Captain Ahab chased. Uh, I've got a dark morph Harlan's hawk. Uh, that has been overwintering here uh, for at least seven years in the same spot. Uh, for those who don't know what Harlan's hawks are or dark, uh, let me explain what this whole, whole deal is. So red-tailed hawks are the most varied hawk um, that we have in, in North America. And one of the subspecies is called the Harlan's hawk. They nest in eastern Alaska, the Yukon, and the Northwest Territories. Uh, during the fall and winter, we'll have some that will migrate down into the United States, the, the lower uh, United States and a lot here in the Midwest. And this particular one is a, a, just a jet black um, uh, hawk. So, they, so they, they just have our very unique red-tailed hawk. Even the tails, almost everyone, it's like a fingerprint. None of them are the same. And so this particular Harlan's hawk has been at the same spot uh, just outside of North Liberty, Iowa, just north of Iowa City, uh, like I said, for about seven years. And we've been trying to catch it, to band it, um, but also to collect some feathers. We have, uh, you know, uh, federal permits for this. Um, and through the stable isotope analysis, we're able to almost locate where the origins of this bird are from. So we've been trying to catch this bird because we're so fascinated with its fidelity to this wintering spot. It's it it what when it first was here it was mainly kind of farmland and pasture, but now subdivisions have emerged all around it. And it still there must be enough hunting ground nearby that it still comes back to the same spot. And um and it and I've probably thrown our balsa tree trap out to it at least a dozen times, if not more, trying to lure it to our little our little lure, the live lure in the cage. And it just, one time it flew down next to it and looked at it. And that's as close as we ever got to, to having it on the, the trap to potentially catching it. So we, so all my friends kind of jokingly call it, you know, my Moby Dick. It's like, here's the bird that Dave keeps trying to, to get. And it just, it taunts me. <laughs> it's it's fact, got your brought, number. <laughs> it's got my number. Everybody says you're going to have to try a different method. 
Um, but it would be so fascinating to learn from this bird since we know where it's, since we know where it's wintering, how fun would it be to know where it's, you know, breeding mm. and, uh, you know, and who knows how many young hawks it's raised. And uh, it's just a fascinating, beautiful bird. Tell me about banding hawks. Our, our local Audubon chapter has a tree swallow banding program, and I can wrap my head around that because a tree swallow can't injure me in any significant way. Yeah. How do you ban? I can see you on the Zoom screen. Our listeners will just be able to hear you, but you have both of your eyeballs still, yeah. and you've been banding yeah. hawks for a long time. <laughs> Tell me about how that's done safely for, for you, but also for the bird. Yeah, that's a great question. So um, since they are birds of prey, you can't really lure them in with sunflower seeds <laughs> or, or we would um so we have to use live prey so the so invasive species like uh your your common pigeon or european starling or house sparrow are all allowed to be used for for luring a hawk um so there's two different ways that that i usually do it one is it's kind of like fishing. You can either, you know, fish with a bobber from a spot along, you know, a body of water, or you can go trolling. Um, so what I was describing with the the Harlan's hawk, that's what we would call trolling, where we have, where we drive to where the hawk is, throw out a trap, and hopefully, you know, catch that bird. The balsa tree trap is a wire, uh, little cone, um, that uh, little cage that has monofilament, uh like slip knots on it. So when the hawk gets in there and tries to grab at the prey, it'll, it'll get its toe uh, caught in that little slip knot. So you just go out there and then just are really um, careful in, in extracting them from that. And the key for me in taking out, cause we primarily catch red tailed hawks and they're also the ones that can do a lot of damage because the, 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 the toes and talons are incredibly, the toes, the feet are super strong. The talons are super sharp. Um, so what I've learned with red-tailed hawks is, is just to go into sloth mode. The slower you move, the, the bird will oftentimes not even react. I can grab its legs and it won't even do much of a struggle. Mm -hmm. Um, when I, you know, now that's not always the case, but that's, that's usually the case most of the time. So get, getting hold of the legs so that you won't get footed because I'm not worried about getting bit by a hawk. I'm worried mm -hmm. about getting footed because once you get footed, once they grab you with their feet and they've got their talons in you, there's no, you're not going to be strong enough to extract those talons with your, you know, yourself. So, um, it, it, yeah. And that happened to me last fall. Actually, it's the first, it's the worst footing I've gotten since about 30 years ago. So I called it my 30 year tetanus or, or my, my, thir my 30 year vaccination to remind myself move slower, <laughs> but they can do a lot of damage. Um, and you just have to be super slow and careful and methodical. And um, yeah. Hmm. How does your faith and your work as a pastor influence your birding and vice versa? Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting you'd ask that because the one thing I didn't talk about with banding is the other method is sitting, you know, along the sitting in a blind, kind of like, you know, a fisherman sitting with a bobber. And it, and this was the first time that I began to put those pieces together. Mm. So I was at a blind um, with a with the with mist nets, which are tall nets that the birds that are pretty much invisible to the birds. And then you have the lure on the other side of the net. So they're migrating from the north. Your, your, your lure bird is on the south side of the net. The hawk dives in, hits the net, gets entangled. Um, and it dawned on me uh, when I was in grad school, 
um, like this is this is my life where I am enticed away from the path I need to be following because mm. the birds here follow rivers. I'm enticed by something that's kind of unnatural, <laughs> you know, it's not, and, and I'm entangled. And I had, you know, I had stuff in my life that I knew I was entangled in and was helpless in getting out. And it reminded me of how um, I knew this was the message of the gospel that, that the, that, you know, the Lord is all about removing us from our entanglement, which is, mm. you know, and if he doesn't, we're, we're gonna, we're, we're not gonna, we're not gonna thrive or survive. And it really dawned on me then, but it still didn't, didn't really, um, I wasn't changed, but I think the seeds were planted that I knew I needed help. I knew I was entangled in stuff that I shouldn't be in. And then in 93, um, I had been going through some stuff and some heart stuff happening on the basketball court and um, a local basketball legend named Chris street. had just died in a, a tragic car accident in the middle of the season. And I was just a lot of questions of mortality I was facing and recognizing I'm still entrapped. I'm still entangled. And, um, and I, it, it just really, I, I started going to a church, um, and the pastor had talked to me about, you know, Jesus isn't Savior or Lord. He's Savior and Lord. And I grew up in a Christian home, and I would say I believed, but I lived like an atheist. I, I just lived as if there was no God, you know. Mm-hmm. And I had no, <laughs> if I, you know, yeah, I was about just going my own way. And, uh, and I knew that was getting me in, in places I shouldn't be. And, and it was certainly wasn't uh, a thriving life. And, and I remember uh, really getting hit on one Sunday thinking about Jesus as Lord. And I, I certainly am not following him as Lord. And I went home and I just fell on my face before God. and like, I want to follow Jesus, but I can't. And I didn't hear any audible voice, but it was it was clearly a, a sense from the Lord, like, you're right, you can't. You finally get it. Mm. There's no possible way. You need you need really the power of God, which we as Christians call the Holy Spirit, to empower you to live the life that God has has made made us to live. And that was the turning point for me. It was the aha moment. And when I look at someone's scripture, one of the things that really hit me was in Hebrews, uh, the, no one knows the author of Hebrews, um, but that author wrote in Hebrews 12 about, you know, uh, throwing off the sin that entangles some scriptures say, and I thought of that net, you know, mm. um, and I'm like, oh my, this is, this is discipleship. And then setting your eyes on the path. And I was thinking about those hawks going down those rivers. And I'm like, way back when, that kind of metaphor um, was there in front of me and it was really began to make sense. So, you know, it's, it's a daily surrender. It's a daily, um, you know, recommitment. Um, And some days we, we, we walk by the power of the spirit and other days we're, you know, struggling with doing it our own way. I mean, that's just the common experience, but that that's kind of maybe how, birding and my experience especially with hawk trapping reminded me of my own plight 
mm-hmm. and my own need to to fix my eyes on Jesus, as it says in that Hebrews twelve two, and uh, and follow Him. Mm. That's a word. You should be a pastor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You mentioned one of your passions is connecting the church to the wild. Tell me Mm -hmm. more about that, because I I think our faith does become very anemic when we just keep it indoors, when it's about sitting in the pew quietly. What, how do you connect the church to the wild and what is the, what is the good in that? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, when I was in seminary, um, one of the things my first, uh, my first year, uh, I took biblical Hebrew and, and we began reading right away. And it really, I mean, for those, you look at Hebrew and you're like, Oh, that looks impossible. But once you learn the, once you learn it, you realize actually, especially the narrative of Hebrew, it's verb, subject, object, verb, subject, object. It's actually not too hard to translate. But one thing that really hit me was in uh, Genesis two fifteen, where you have the narrative of Adam who's formed out of the Adamah. You know, so we call it Adam, but Adam is the ground. So there's a lot of wordplay going on there. Mm. And then where where the Lord Yahweh, the the God of Israel, plants him in in Eden and says to uh, Avav Vashamer it, you know, uh, to serve and protect it, which we see in our University of Iowa police cars. Uh, hmm. You know that very that's that I'm like that's that is a Hebrew phrase right there, and they don't know it. But I, but it but when we think about um, the role of the church to and and really the love of God for the cosmos, you know John three sixteen for God so loved the cosmos. People don't read it that way when they mm. read world, but it's He loves His entire creation. A big part of our role is to avav shamer, you know, to to serve and protect. Um, and so, so conservation should play a huge role, you know, in the church's mission. Um, it's part of the good news that that God mm-hmm. loves the world and He's calling His people to love one another and also to serve as good stewards um, of His good creation, which we've fallen away from. So, when I think about connecting the church to the wild, I think of one, you know, reminding our our our, our people that. We have, you know, the gospel is way bigger than sometimes we've been taught that the good news is for the entire world. Um, and then and then also, as we see, in, even in Jesus' teaching, you know, look to the sparrow, look to the flowers of the field. You know what I mean? Like Jesus used, you know, his creation as, as a great, you know, uh, pictures for teaching. And so I'm sure our people are tired of hearing, you know, nature connections or worse sports stories, my bad, but, um, you know, so I've used, you know, obviously there's things that happen in the wild that, that really fit with what's going on in the lectionary, then mm-hmm. I'll run with it. Totally. I, I try to keep birds out of my sermons, but they just, they want to be there. They just come back, you know, I'm like, okay, I'm sorry, but this owl illustration perfectly fits the John six text that is on for this Sunday. So it just, sometimes you got to do what you got to do. Absolutely. <laughs> So I love that connection with with Genesis 2 and the importance of connecting the church to the natural world, not just for the sake of the world, but also for the sake of the church. I think our faith is deepened and broadened, and we have a deeper connection with just the wonder 
of who God is when we're when we're outdoors and in nature. And the beautiful thing about birds is you can trap them, you can bait them, you can try to ban them, but they 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 are a little bit like the Holy Spirit. They're going to go where they want to go and they don't care about your <laughs> hypothesis. And there's just such a gift in that. And every bird you see and every bird you witness and every bird you experience is is a gift. Absolutely. It keeps me going back, Dave. It just keeps me going back. It's all about the birds. <laughs> you know, yeah. It's like in our in our programs, we teach, you know, one of the, in the School of the Wild program, uh, we have a five-day rotation uh, at, at our local School of the Wild effort. We're, um, we're expanding throughout the state right now, but but in the local one, it's it's a day in the woodlands, a day in the wetlands, a day in the prairies, a day in archaeology and ornithology is our, you know, one of our days. So if we have, say, a group of 60 kids, they're in groups of 12 and we have a different instructor. And so our bird instructor, instructor, you know, have, you know, they're like, you teach the same thing every day. Like, yeah, you teach the kid birding and you teach and you do we do bird banding, but it's not the same every day. It's it's always something different. And, uh, you never know what you're going to see. And, and that, that, that's, what's really fun about it. It's, it's somewhat predictable, but then you never know. Yeah. You, it, it really, for me, it, it fits in with the parable of the sower where Jesus is planting the seeds and you can create the right conditions for these seeds to grow. But at the end of the day, the growth itself is, is of God. The growth is a gift from God. We cannot force any of these seeds to germinate, to sprout, to blossom. And the same is true with birds. You can, you can think, okay, these particular sparrows are migrating through. And if I go to this forest, I'm likely to see one, but you're still just likely you know, and you might see yeah. something totally different if your eyes are open and you're paying attention. Absolutely. It's fun. And it's fun once you've taught others to hear the stories of the things they see. And one of the really fun things was, was uh, you know, we had the, our hawk blind going uh, a while back. And and even though I couldn't be in the hawk blind, but we had people we had trained in there. It was just so fun to like, what you guys seeing? You know, what's going on? <laughs> And, and to hear their stories, it's it's fun to to experience it vicariously even. Yeah, to see that spark of wonder as a birder and as a pastor, right? Because you see that also when you serve in ministry, when people have that spark of understanding of, oh, this, this story is for me. This story yeah. connects with my heart, with my soul, is going to change my life. There's transformation and, and that overlap is such a beautiful thing. Um, have you converted your whole congregation to birding? Are all of your people birders now? <laughs> Uh, that's a great question. I definitely, and I know you know this too, but you have friends who never were interested and they'll call you like, Hey, I saw this. What's that? I get a lot of that. In fact, I think while we're on the thing here on the talk here, something popped up on my, um, phone, like someone telling me about a bird they saw. So we definitely get a lot of those stories and maybe we attract people that, to come here because they're like, Oh, I'm into birding too. That this is a place that I can connect with. So yeah, I think there, we have a lot of folks that are that are interested. When I walk across the patio, so I'm here in Southern California, so we have this outdoor patio at church. When I walk across on a Sunday morning, half the questions I get are pastoral or theological, and half of them are bird related. Yeah. <laughs> so really, they're all theological, you know. It's <laughs> yes. But I always yes. love that. I got a picture of this in my yard. What is it? I'm like, oh, let's talk. And those those connections are a beautiful thing because I'm not a sports person like you, so I have to connect where I can. You know, I. <laughs> My husband's a sports guy. I just, I just endure it. I endure it all. Yep. I understand. Well, Dave, what would you say to someone who is, is 
new to birding and wants to get started, wants to learn more about hawks, where should they start? Yeah, it all depends on where they're at. Um, here, you know, if, if we're talking about hawks, uh, you know, it's amazing the numbers of hawks that are seen at some of our big migration uh, kind of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Concentration points. So, for example, here in the, in the Midwest, if, if we're just to go up to Duluth, Minnesota, uh, up to Hawk Ridge, in September, October, and even November, you're going to see things you never dreamed of. Um, mm. In fact, when I was doing work on sharpshin hawks, uh, they have a blind, they have observ observers, but then they also have a place they trap in band hawks. So I was looking at uh, uh, fat storing patterns and migrating sharpshin hawks. And so we caught uh, sharpshin hawks. We looked at the body fat they had on them. And one day we caught 125 sharpies and mm. uh, it, it was extraordinary. So if you, if you, that'll hook someone <laughs> to see that, that to see these birds up close like that and just to see those sheer numbers so finding those concentration points getting involved in a local birding club is the probably the best way to get started because you're going to mm -hmm. have really seasoned people who, who who know where to look and what to look for and and how to uh share with you you know the techniques and finding birds and seeing birds and, and enjoying them you know setting up a bird feeder in your backyard um you know, it's even though you're going to get your common birds that you normally see, you'll always get an uncommon one coming through every now and again. And, and, uh, you know, there's just a lot of different ways, I think, to, to get started in it. Um, yeah. Can anyone go bird banding? Could I just go out tomorrow, buy some bands, catch some hawks? <laughs> you could, but it wouldn't be legal. I'd go to bird um, jail. You don't want to go to bird jail. <laughs> you don't want to go to bird jail. There's a, yeah, but they're, they're, if you just kind of look around, you'll find people who are actually doing it. And a lot of them are really amenable to having people come alongside in the field. And I would highly recommend it. If you're interested, seek those folks out. Um, it's just, it is really, I mean, it's, as they say, a bird in hand is worth two in a bush. And there is something to be said about that. It's just amazing to one, to see a bird up close, but another to, to just really to, to be able to handle one. And then of course, the joy of releasing it after it's been safely banded. Mm. And they're banded for research purposes, right? This isn't just a, a lark that people are on when we can track them and see which birds come back and where they travel to. We learn yeah. more and we can steward the earth in a more thoughtful way. Yeah, yeah. Banding is a great way to help learn about uh, bird movement, migration, and also about bird longevity. And also about um, through capture, recapture, higher statistics, we can estimate populations. So there's a program it's out of California uh, called MAPS, Monitoring Avian Productivity and Survivorship. And uh, it's a it's it's the program shared throughout North America and how to estimate breeding bird populations and 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 banding is 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 at the heart of it. Mm. I have not yet banded a bird. It's on my list. Okay. Well, I cannot die until I've 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 assisted in a bird banding experience. Well, if you're ever in Iowa City, we will make that happen and make it happen quickly. Oh, that would be so fun, Dave. I will definitely look you up if I'm in Iowa City. I grew up in Wisconsin and, and the Midwest is very, very, very dear to my heart. So um, thank you so much for the gift of your time and your wisdom and your expertise. One final question before we go. Where are you finding hope these days? That's 
you know, hope for me is capitalized and frankly, and this is going to sound really cliche, but my hope is in Christ, the risen Lord. I mean, Mm -hmm. as, as cliche as that sounds, when we're looking at a world where, you know, um, I mean, what's going on in Ukraine, the -hmm. threats of, of war and, you know, the banking situation currently and, all these things in which we we kind of put our hope in in uh, wealth, or we put our hope in you know p- world peace, or all of those things eventually are going to be threatened. Uh, we've just been a little bit blessed in avoiding a lot of that so far, but uh, but we know that our hope is not in those situations. Our hope is actually in the God who made us, who loved us um, despite ourselves. And who wants to make all things whole again? And that's the that's the Christian hope. As one professor in seminary said, you know, if you could put a empty tomb around a neck on a necklace, it would probably be the better symbol than the cross. Mm. Um, as important as the cross is, but it's more of like, you know, Jesus initiated at his resurrection that there is hope that's come into the world and hope that is coming into the world. The the, mm. king, the kingdom of God. We're not talking about know some kind of theocracy we're talking about a a world that thrives in its relationship with its creator and its love for one another and in its love for creation so my hope is in him Hmm. and 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 when i see pictures of that like right now i'm looking out the window and i see a you know a female cardinal ready to jump at the theater Hmm. um you know when i see when i see life like during the pandemic and we're all struggling without just being stuck at home, I would go outside and I'd hear the robins singing and it just hit me like birds don't know there's a pandemic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was like, it brought joy and hope that, you know, the, the, that God is still in control, that, uh, that he's still, his eye is still on the sparrow and on you and on me and on everyone. And, and that's, that's where I find my hope. Mm. Reach it. <laughs> Sometimes a cliche is a cliche because it's true. Yeah. Yeah. It's a long, beautiful story and we're just at the start of it all. Yes. Dave, thank you so much for the gift of your time and your wisdom. I wish you many blessings on your, on your program at the university of Iowa and many blessings on your church. And if I'm in Iowa city, you better believe you're getting an email from me. Cause I want to go ban some Hawks. All right, Courtney, let's make that happen. (laughs) Thank you so, so much. Friends, listeners, we will link to Dave's programs in the show notes if you want to check them out. Maybe you live around Iowa City or you have a a student who'd be interested in attending one of these summer camps. Um, Check it out and and look Dave up. He's, He's doing good work on a lot of different fronts. Thanks so much, Dave. Thank you. The Thing with Feathers is produced by me, Courtney Ellis. Many thanks to Del Belcher for the music, to Todd Peterson for the name inspiration, and to Emily Dickinson for the beautiful poem and for being in the public domain. Until next time, my friends, keep looking up. Oh, your soul. Yes, it does.